listening to Open Lines Radio. Uh, welcome to Saturday Detention. Here we are spending another Saturday in the study hall together. Um, but it's okay. We're together. Where else are you gonna, what else are you going to do on a Saturday? 
Today, we're going to be listening to a lecture by Kurt Vonnegut from um, February 4th of 2004. He was addressing um, a group of uh, individuals called the Case College Scholars, which are a group of students at Case College who go above and beyond uh, grades. They do all kinds of things in the community. So I thought, you know, that's kind of like, like us, the, the, the Open Lines radio crew. Let's listen to what uh, Kurt Vonnegut had to say. He, uh, he was the author of such books as Slaughterhouse-Five, Cat's Cradle, Welcome to the Monkey House, and Timequake. And uh, I just, he just had kind of this great humor. So I thought we could lighten things up here around lighten things up around here at Open Lines today on Saturday. Since we've got to spend Saturday in detention together, we might as well have some fun with it. So uh, here it is. Thank you, thank you. I look out, I look out at all you Adams, all you Adams and Eves, and Eves out here, out here and, 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 and I realize how wide the generation, generation gap, can gap can be. Is, I used to be an Adam, but I'm a Methuselah now. And uh, when you get to be my age, you start asking your kids what life is all about. And I asked my son Mark Vonnegut, so named in honor of Mark Twain, what life was all about. He's a pediatrician. And he gave what I think is a very good answer. He said, we are here to help each other get through this thing, whatever it is. <laughs> so I tell you that. And I want to say, too, that no matter how corrupt our government and corporations and Wall Street and news media may yet become, the music will still be perfectly wonderful. And if I... And if I ever die, God forbid, uh, I want this for my epitaph. It's the only proof he ever needed of the existence of God was music. This is a good place to say that, isn't it? <laughs> now then... <clears throat> I'm here to make news this afternoon to put Cleveland on the map. <laughs> I am not running for president, although I know that a sentence, in order to be complete, has to have both a subject and a verb. <laughs> Nor will I confess that I've sleep with children. <laughs> I will say, though, that my wife is the oldest person I ever slept with. <laughs> Here's the big news. I am suing Brown and Williamson Tobacco Company of Louisville, Kentucky for billions, I hope. And though you lawyers here, those in law school, will be interested in this case, I think. I have never smoked anything but Paul Malt since I was 11 years old. This is a Brown and Williamson product. On their package, 
for several years now, they've promised to kill me, but I'm still alive. <laughs> 81 years old. Thanks a lot, you dirty rats. <coughs> the last thing I ever wanted was to be alive when the three most important, most powerful people on the face of the earth were named Bush, Dick, and Colin. <laughs> yeah. Who, who do I want for, to run uh, on the Democratic ticket for president? Well, we need an actor, as our form of government now is television, a made-for-movie, made-for-television movie. So we need an actor like Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, an actual movie star. As I think Paul Newman, maybe. I would say Peter Jennings, uh, but he wasn't born in this country. He was born in Canada. I have to say that it must be kind of spooky for you people here at Case to uh, be in a great institution like this one with its laboratories and lecture halls and libraries, uh, knowing that this institution is within the borders of a country where truth and reason uh, and lessons of history do not apply. And oh, There's good news and there's bad news this afternoon, Case. The bad news is that the Martians have landed in New York City. They're staying at the Waldorf. The good news is that they only eat homeless men, women, and children of all colors, and they pee gasoline. <laughs> now, only kidding, of course. Now, as you know, so you'll know whether I'm kidding or not, uh, I'll go like this. <laughs> that means I'm kidding. If, if it turns out that uh, uh, Cleveland is likely to be attacked by terrorists, I'll go like this. Is don't, don't get the two signals mixed up. Uh, <laughs> Now, I'll have an experiment here. It's, it's, I will say something I obviously don't believe and then signal that, uh, that I, I'm not being serious. Is, uh, all right, how about this? Is join the army and defend democracy, okay? I'm sorry, that's the wrong signal. <laughs> join... <laughs> well, anyway, seriously... If you keep up with current events the way I do in supermarket tabloids, then you know that a team of Martian anthropologists has been studying us for the past 10 years. Uh, they went home last week because they knew how really awful global warming was about to become. Uh, their space vehicle, incidentally, uh, wasn't a flying saucer. It was more of a flying soup terrain. Uh, and they are a little all right. They're only four inches high, but they aren't green. They're mauve. 
Anyway, by way of farewell, their little mauve leader is said in that teeny-weeny, tanny-wanny, tony little voice of hers that there were two things about our culture no Martian could ever understand. And I won't imitate her voice, as I can't go that high. What is it, she squeaked. What can it possibly be, she squeaked, about blowjobs and golf? (laughs) What is it like to be this old? Thanks to Brown and Williamson. I can't parallel park with a dam anymore, so please don't watch when I try to do it. (laughs) Yes, and to all practical purposes, I am now a flaming neuter. (laughs) I am as celibate as 50% of the heterosexual Roman Catholic clergy. (laughs) (laughs) But I have found that celibacy is no root canal. Uh, it is so cheap and convenient. (laughs) You don't have to say anything afterwards or do anything afterwards because there is no afterwards. (laughs) And when my TV, which I call my tantrum, uh, waves boobs in my face and tells me that everybody but me is going to get laid tonight and this is a national emergency so I've got to rush out and buy some pills or a car or a gymnasium I can fold and hide under my bed Uh, I laugh like a hyena when television tells me that you know and I know that millions upon millions of good Americans are not going to get laid tonight present company not accepted and we flaming neuters vote I look forward to a day when the President of the United States, no less, who probably isn't going to get laid that night either, proclaims Neuter Pride Day. (laughs) And out of our closets we'll come and we'll go marching up main streets all over this boob-crazed democracy of ours. Our chins will be high, our shoulders squared, and we'll be laughing like hyenas. As all you flaming neuters, you found your leader here. (laughs) Now, you and the cops are certainly entitled to know that uh, since I'm going to spend the night here in Cleveland, that I'm both a Luddite and a humanist. I may stage a black mass tonight if I can find a a neocon baby to sacrifice. (laughs) A a Luddite is a person who hates certain newfangled contraptions. Forbes magazine asked a bunch of us a while back to name our favorite technologies, and I said the Encyclopedia Britannica in my address book, because they were alphabetical. Uh, Corner mailbox, I like a lot, too. Because it looks like a big bullfrog, a big friendly bullfrog. And when I give it something to eat, it goes a ribbit. <laughs> All right. I also like Sharpies. I think that is a major, <laughs> a major event. Give credit where credit is due. If they'd asked me which 
technologies I hated most, I would have said nuclear submarines aimed, armed with Poseidon missiles with hydrogen bombs in their warheads. How did we, the people, ever come to pay billions of bucks for such a preposterous, genocidal, ultimately suicidal contraption? We were horn-so-ogled by super salesmen for our armaments industry, which is to say, our federal government. What on earth use would we have for this thing? And look, we have a couple of them at least. You know, slumbering uh, in fjords off Iceland or whatever. When on earth would we ever turn loose such gadgets? We own them, by God. I hate computers for kids, too. They cheat the kids out of the vital experience of becoming. Instead of becoming, the kid learns how to make the computer become what he himself or herself could have become without one. Actually, a computer can do the same thing to a grown-up. I have a son-in-law who's been lobotomized by his computer. (laughs) He doesn't have to know anything because his computer knows everything. I ask him anything, and he asks his computer. Because all I wanted was an answer when what I really wanted was a son-in-law. Uh, I tell you, as I myself have had a terrible experience, with, uh, and there's no longer such a thing as a typewriter. No longer such, and that's as though they took away my violin, you know, and I'd been a good violinist. But I think back in the old days when I had a choice between a typewriter or a computer. I have an Apple now, which I just use as a word processor. I mean, it talk, tries to talk to me sometimes, and I just tell it to, you know, go engage in airborne intercourse with the hole on a rolling donut. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, back in the old days when there were still typewriters, and... Uh, you could choose between either a typewriter or, or a computer. Uh, I, of course, chose typewriter. And it was my violin. And there in New York, my wife and I uh, work at home. We both have offices in our home. It's a four-story house in New York. I work on the top floor. She works on the ground floor. She is the photojournalist, Jill Kremens. Uh, who's published three books to every one of my one. One of them is a very young dancer, for instance. Anyway, uh, back in the days when I still used a typewriter, I'd be up on the top floor. And, you know, and I'd be typing away, and, and the pages would be, you know, be quite messy, and I'd mark them up with a pen and pencil and make corrections and everything. And then I'd pick up the telephone and call up my typist, can you imagine there used to be such a trade as typist? And all over this country, it was mostly women who made substantial contributions to their family incomes because they could type without making a mistake. They should have been concert pianists. They were so deft. I hope they haven't all turned to crime now. <laughs> I... Anyway, in the good old days, 
I'd have a bunch of pages finally, but really messy, but responsibly edited. I pick up the phone and call up my typist, Carol. I'd say, hi, Carol. How are you, honey? And she'd say, hi, Kurt. What's up? Wasn't that nice? And talk about safe sex. <laughs> anyway, I'd say, uh, I got some more pages. She said, okay, good. Hooray. Send them over. And uh, so I'd ask her, you know, about her. I know she had back trouble for a while, and she's got a husband who, uh, well, never mind what her problem is with him. Uh, anyway, I tell her, all right, I'm going to mail you many of these pages. And she said, okay, look forward to seeing them. And so I, taking these pages, and I've put them together with a paper clip. And so I take these messy pages down two flights of stairs to the ground floor where my wife works, and I dance on the way down. This is very good exercise. And, uh, you know, what, what Microsoft, what's the name of the guy who runs it, the richest man in the world? Uh, anyway, he doesn't seem to realize we're dancing animals. Anyway, I danced down the front steps and doing some pretty good stuff, may I say. And my, my wife hears me going past her workstation there and she says, where are you going? And her favorite reading when she was a, a child was Nancy Drew, Girl Detective. And so I say, I'm going to buy an envelope. And she say, one envelope? Why don't you buy a hundred envelopes and put them in a closet up where you work? And I pretend I haven't heard her. And I... <laughs> and I, into the world I go with my pages. And what a figure I am. I am a man with a mission. And I go dancing down our front steps and out on the sidewalk, sort of a, uh, uh, an understated buck and wing, I would say. And, uh, you know, because people are so cheered up and excited to see a man so full of purpose. What can those papers be? They must be terribly important. And he must be terribly important. And may I say, I think I look quite sexy. Anyway, I go down the sidewalk, and I'm headed for a news store uh, where they sell not only magazines and newspapers, but uh, lottery tickets and, and stationery and so on. And, you know, on the way, you know, I may stop a woman and ask her what kind of crazy dog that is she's walking. You know, it looks like a half Labrador and half Chihuahua. And... Or if a fire engine is going by, I, I might give him thumbs up, because I'm all for firemen. Anyway, <laughs> off I go, a man with a purpose, and I go into the news store there, and uh, there's a long line, mostly for lottery tickets, uh, but I know their stock. And so I go back, and I get an 8.5 by 11 envelope, manila envelope. And people are very, I'm a celebrity, but everybody is very polite and pretends they don't know who I am. <laughs> and, and so, just like another Joe, I take my place at the end of the line uh, with my envelope. 
And, uh, you know, I like to talk to people. And also, I, I like to look at all the boobs on the cover of the magazines. <laughs> anyway, you know, did, uh, do you know anybody who ever won a lottery or won any money in a lottery or, you know, what happened to your foot and that sort of thing? And we chat and everything, and the time goes by. <laughs> and finally, now look, this store was then, no longer, but was then owned by Hindus. The woman behind the cash register, the wife, had a jewel in her forehead. Now that's a worth a trip right there. Anyway, I finally reached the head of the line, acting like just anybody else, and uh, pay for the envelope, which is now mine. And I take my pages, and I put them in there, in there inside there, and the flap on the envelope is very cunningly designed, uh, has both mucilage, it has a hole in it too, so that uh, uh, an easily bendable metal prong can be spread out to seal it twice. Well, all right, so there in the store sill, I uh, uh, lick the underside of the envelope, which is pretty sexy. <laughs> and Anyway, I seal the envelope and the little fin diddly, the metal fin diddly, I don't know what it's called, it, it comes up through the hole and I spread that out. Now look at this. Two of the largest parts of our brain are devoted to the most sensitive parts of our body. Our fingertips and the tongue. And I have exercised both of those totally involved them in this process of simply sealing the envelope. So I put Carol's envelope, uh, an address on the envelope, and I head two blocks south to a postal convenience center. Now, my heart was beating hard when I first talked to Carol on the telephone, because that's, you know, erotic. Uh, LAUGHTER but it's really pounding as I approach a postal convenience center because I, back then, uh, was secretly in love with the woman behind the counter there. She has disappeared. I don't know what the hell happened to her. I don't know what the hell happened to Carol. <laughs> anyway, this is very, very near the United Nations. And uh, so what's, what's it like? You know, every, every imaginable race is represented. And what it's, what it's like to live as close to the UN as I do, it was like being at a dog show. Uh, all these different breeds, you know, they're interesting. Anyway, I go into the postal convenience center there, and there are all these foreigners in there. And uh, the woman I love, is, again, there's a long line, uh, is behind the counter. I've never seen her. Uh, from the armpits up because she's always behind the counter and she's also sheathed in a, a blue uh, smock, the official blue smock of the post office department with the eagle on the bosom. But what she does with her neck and head to cheer us up every day, it's so generous. It's never the same thing. 
And she knows she's doing this. She's making us happy. And it's so generous of her because it must be a lot of work. As you know, sometimes her hair will be all frizzy, and that's kind of funny. And then next time, it'll be really straight. You know, sometimes it'll be in braid. Now, this is to entertain us because she knows how drab our lives are. <laughs> and I don't know if she was born without eyebrows or whether she plucked them out. In any case, every day she looks different because she can paint on a different set of eyebrows. <laughs> One day she'll look like Betty Boop, and the next day she'll look like the, the sister of Count Dracula. And I missed this, but I heard that one day she actually painted on a Hitler mustache, and I wish I had done that, but she was doing that sort of thing to cheer us up. And so, all right, I talked to foreigners there in the line ahead of me, and uh, not giving a sign of how much I love this generous woman. And, uh, you know, as I, if, it's, if it's a Chinese... Uh, I might say to him, as you know, as how, how grateful uh, Americans are to the Chinese for movable type and pasta and gunpowder. Uh, if it was an Arab, obviously an Arab, is I might thank him and say, you know, for the, the Arabs, for the numbers we use and for algebra. And, you know, that's why George Bush hates the Arabs, is they invented algebra. <laughs> but anyway, uh, and finally, I get to the head of the line, and here I am face to face with her. Uh, oh, God, she looks wonderful. I think it was black lipstick that day. And I'm not kidding you. I talk about lipstick. It could be, be axe murder red. It could be any color. And it's all so exciting. And it all cheers us up. And there's all kinds of st stuff hanging from her ears and around her neck all the time. One time, she actually hung fresh radishes around her neck <laughs> to cheer us up. Anyway, I keep a perfectly straight face. And I think so does she. And I just simply hand her the envelope and asking her to weigh it and tell me how, tell me the proper number of stamps to send it on its way. And I think, I think if I had broken the spell, if I had suddenly blurted out, I love you, <laughs> we both would have fallen to pieces as though made of glass and just been shattered because I would have broken something very magical. And so uh, all I s said, you know, is how much? <laughs> and, <laughs> and so she tells me how much and, and uh, I pay her and out I go. And here I've got this, what was once a blank envelope, empty envelope, full of pages and it's addressed it has become an animal raring to go it's got a stamp on it it's got stamps on it what a transformation this is no ordinary envelope anymore <coughs> I go to the mailbox my friend on the corner the big bullfrog and I feed it the envelope and it says ribbit 
that it swallows it. And I go home, and I have had one hell of a good time. <laughs> and let me tell you, we are here on earth to fart around, <laughs> and don't let anybody ever tell you any different. Now, see what I've got here. It's uh, got some other good stuff. Uh, all right, so now you know what a Luddite is. And I've also said I'm a humanist. That is a person, like both my parents and all four of my grandparents, who behave as honorably and decently as he or she can, without any expectation of rewards or punishment in an afterlife. A humanist serves as best he or she can, the only abstraction with which he or she has any real familiarity, which is our community. Now, I am honor honorary president of the American Humanist Association, uh, having succeeded the late great science fiction writer Isaac Asimov in that totally functionless capacity. <laughs> we had a memorial service for Isaac a while back, and... Uh, and at one point I said, Isaac is up in heaven now. This was the funniest thing I could have said to an audience of humanists. <laughs> Rolled him in the aisles and it was several minutes before order could be restored. <laughs> so, again, if I ever die, God forbid, uh, I hope you, some of you will say that, that Kurt is up in heaven now. That's my favorite joke both a Luddite and a humanist. You know what a twerp was when I was in high school in Indianapolis a long time ago? It was a guy who stuffed false teeth up his rear end and bit the buttons off the back seats of taxi cabs. <laughs> you know what a snarf was? It was a Guy who sniffed girls' bicycle seats. <laughs> now then, where the hell are we? I've lost track of how long I've been speaking because I didn't start my stopwatch. But I will. <coughs> uh, I have had a technical education, and uh, but every time I've every time I've been in. On a faculty, I've been in the English department, although I've never been an English major. And I have tried to bring scientific thinking to literary criticism, and there's been very little gratitude for this. <laughs> All right. Uh, stories have very simple shapes, ones that computers can understand. This is a GI axis. Good fortune, ill fortune. Death, terrible disease, poverty, boisterous, good health, happiness up here. This is the BE axis. Beginning entropy. <laughs> now then... I'll give you a marketing tip. There's a people who can afford 
educations and buying books and magazines and all that who can read don't like to read about people who are poor or sick. So start your story up here. <laughs> now, the simplest story, and if you stay home and watch this on television, uh, you'll see, it'll be told again and again and again. Nobody, every, every, nobody ever gets tired of this story. I call it man in a hole, but it needn't be about a man in a hole. Somebody gets into trouble, gets out of it again. Uh, uh, the far end is a little higher than where we began because, you know, the reader thinks, well, by God, I'm a human being too. I must have that much in reserve if I get into trouble or whatever. Now, another story that's very popular, and uh, none of these are copyrighted, <laughs> is, is I, I call it Boy Meets Girl, but it needn't be about a boy or a girl. It's somebody on a day like any other day comes across something perfectly wonderful. Oh, boy! This is my lucky day. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> and gets it back again. Now, as has been said, is I... I have a master's degree in anthropology from the University of Chicago. So does Saul Bellow. I, say, I don't know what you want to make of that. Uh, anyway, I, I, it was a big mistake. I can't stand primitive people. They're so stupid. But, <laughs> but anyway, proof of their stupidity was I, you know, I, I went to the library and dug up stories they told. You know, they'd been gathered by missionaries and ethnographers and imperialists of other sorts. And, boy, their stories stunk. They were just dead level, uh, like the B-E axis there. It, you know, we came to a river, we came to a mountain, little beaver died, and you can't, you can't tell, you can't tell what the good news is and what the bad news is. You look at the wonderful rise and fall of our stories, and, you know, they deserve to lose. Uh, another story, it's very popular, and it breaks my rule. Starts down here. It's a young girl, teenage, I guess, maybe 17, 18. Why is she so low? Well, her mother's died reading enough, right? And her father has remarried almost immediately to a terrible old battle axe with two mean daughters. <laughs> and there's a party at the palace that night. <laughs> You've heard it. <laughs> All right, so she has to help her 
new mother and her sisters, her new sisters, get dressed for this party. And uh, she doesn't get to go. I said, no, no, she, uh, she's not good enough to go, but they are. So did she get even sadder? No. She's a stout-hearted little girl. It's maximum grief as death of her mother. So everybody leaves for the party, and the fairy godmother shows up and gives her pantyhose, mascara, perfume, <laughs> everything, means of transportation, carriage with horses and everything, everything you need to go to a party and have a good time. So she goes, and the prince falls in love with her. Now you must realize she is so heavily made up that her own relatives don't recognize her. <laughs> okay. So the clock strikes 12, as promised. And so she loses all the stuff. It's all taken away and the fairy godmother said that was going to happen. There's a very steep drop here. It doesn't take long for a clock to strike 12. Does she drop down to the same level? No. For the rest of her life, she remembered the time she was the belle of the ball. So she poops along at this considerably improved uh, level until a shoe fits and she becomes off-scale happy. Now, there's a Franz Kafka story. <laughs> Very pessimistic. Starts down here. There's this rather unattractive, not particularly nice looking, not very personable young man uh, who has a really lousy job and disagreeable relatives. And uh, so... It's time for him to go to work again. And he has turned into a cockroach. <laughs> All right, now, does this, does this have any use in, in uh, criticizing literature? Well, I think perhaps it does. I think this rise and fall is, in fact, artificial. It's pretense that we know more about life than we really do. And uh, what's perhaps a true masterpiece cannot be crucified on the cross of this design. Well, all right, let's try Hamlet, okay? Well, I don't have to draw a new level. His sexes are reversed, but he's in the same situation as Cinderella, and a little older. His father has died, and his mother has remarried his uncle. And so he is depressed as Cinderella. So, he is feeling very unhappy and depressed and everything, and his friend Horatio comes in and says, Hey, Hamlet. There's this thing up on the parapet. I think you better go talk to it. <laughs> it says it's your father. And so Hamlet goes up there 
and this thing, whatever it is. Now, we don't know. Is any of you who have horsed around with Ouija boards or with any sort of seances or anything, you know there are malicious spirits around who are looking for saps like you, <laughs> who are going to find ways to hurt you, give you very bad advice. So this, to this day, we do not know whether that thing up there on the parapet was really the ghost of his father and whether it was telling him the truth. But the thing said, I'm your father. I was murdered by the man who's now the king, and you've got to avenge me. Well, since we don't know what it was, what it is, it's neither good news nor bad news, because we don't know. And so, all right, Hamlet says, I know what I'll do. I'll stage a play. I'll get higher actors and get them to act out the way the murder was described to me, and I'll have the murder suspect watch and watch his reaction. Well, okay, so he does that. It's a flop. <laughs> nothing, nothing much happens. And so Hamlet is up in his mother's chamber uh, talking right after this flop and talking, and uh, the curtains wave or the heiress waves the drapes wave and so he figures his uncle is back there his new father supposedly and so he's going to finally be decisive and he pulls out his sword sticks it through the drapes who falls out this windbag Polonius <laughs> and Shakespeare regards him as a total fool and <coughs> yeah, you know giving just the kind of dumb advice parents give their kids when they go away, you know, neither a borrower nor a lender be. Thanks a lot, Dad. What a swell time. <laughs> anyway, is this terrible? It's, it's, is Hamlet going to get arrested or what? No. It's neither good nor bad news. It's just something that happened. All right. So finally, Hamlet gets in a duel and is killed. Uh, did he, if he goes to heaven, he's off scale, happy like Cinderella. If he's, if, if he's going to hell, he's off scale, unhappy like Kafka's cockroach. And, but we don't know. I don't think Hamlet believed in heaven and hell any more than I do. I mean, that Shakespeare didn't. So, I would just prove to you that... Shakespeare was as poor a storyteller as any Arapaho. Or... <laughs> but I haven't. I have, in fact, told you why this is respected as a masterpiece. We are so seldom told the truth. And Hamlet, in Hamlet, Shakespeare tells us. We don't know enough about life to know what the good news is and the bad news is. And we respond to that. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> now, if you think, what well, all we do is, is we pretend to know what the good news is and what the bad news is, and you think about our training in this matter, all we do is echo the feelings of people around us. Just imagine a little kid, three years old, maybe four, and the parents are so excited they have the most wonderful piece of news for this kid. And there's a little kid, oh boy, what can this be? And it's nice. 
Here's the terrific news, the bombshell. It's your birthday. What could be a more empty piece of information? <laughs> and so the kid goes, wah, 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 wah. And, you know, it goes on as, as our team one. Wah, 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 wah. Our candidate one. Wah, 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 wah. So, although I don't believe in heaven, I would like to go up to such a place once just to ask somebody in charge, hey, what was the good news and what was the bad news? Because we can't be sure. Now, every lecture I've ever given uh, has included my tribute to my Uncle Alex, my brother's kid brother, who was a graduate of Harvard and a wise man, but just an insurance salesman in Indianapolis. He was childless. But what Uncle Alex found objectionable about so many human beings is that they so seldom noticed it when they were happy. And so we would be sitting under an apple tree, for instance, on a July afternoon drinking lemonade and, you know, talking about this and that, and it's practically buzzy like honeybees. And Uncle Alex would stop everything and say, if this, wait a minute, stop. If this isn't nice, I don't know what is. And so he would do that again and again. And it was very good advice, and I've taken it up. And I hope that you will take up this habit, too, of noticing when things are really awfully nice and say, if this isn't nice, I don't know what is. Now then, I don't know how long have I talked. I've lost track as I'm supposed to speak for 45 minutes. Anybody know how long I've spoken? Huh? About 45? That's, what? All right, well, I'm going to ask for a show of hands now, so get set for that. <laughs> and this is for everybody here. Everybody, uh, no matter what age. How many of you have had a teacher at any point in your whole educational career, primary school, high school, college, grad school, how many of you have had a teacher who made you prouder to be alive, happier to be alive than you had previously believed possible? Would you show up your hands, please, those of you who have? All right. Now then, would you please say the name of that teacher to someone sitting next to you? All done? If this isn't nice, I don't know what is. Music, please. <laughs>